TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. Need your Minnesota United soccer fix? We've got it for you here. It's Loon Talk on Score North. That's right, it is Loon Talk here on Score North. I'm your host, Jonathan Harrison. You can also hear some other podcasts that I produce, including Crafty Rogues, produce uh, Purple Daily, and Mackie and Judd with Rami Daily here on Score North, scorenorth.com, and the free Score North mobile app. I am joined today, my first return guest here on Loon Talk, Jeff Reuter of The Athletic. How are you doing, sir? Doing all right. Didn't realize this was a milestone appearance. I'll, um, I'll put up my top button on my shirt or something. We'll call it good. <laughs> you can crack open a bottle of your favorite beverage and uh, we can get this started. Um, how you uh, handling quarantine life? I mean, that's kind of what we're all discussing here on, on Score North is just how we go on without sports and handling quarantine life. How are you doing in uh, quarantine life, sir? You know, it's it's crazy, but working for The Athletic is a really interesting kind of set up anyway because we all work from home uh mm-hmm. we don't have like a home office or anything so the idea of having to go work from home isn't foreign to us we're pretty pretty uh capable of that it, it's also just it, you know i think we've we've allowed ourselves to be able to work on some some stories that usually have to get brushed to the back burner mm-hmm. uh when, when you're focusing on you know transactions or you're focusing on games that are going week to week uh we can actually write more of these kind of storytelling pieces so like writing about the san francisco delta's last week for example but um I mean, otherwise, I don't know. It's it's a lot of time. The dog's really happy um, having both my wife and I home all the time. Uh, he's over the moon about it, and I think that's <laughs> that's that's probably the one real winner of this whole thing. So, uh, go Winston. Um, question for you. We'll we'll get started off on what we're going to talk about today. Here, uh, this is kind of going to be more interviewish than conversational because I still am trying to wrap my head around everything that happened yesterday. Major League Soccer launched a new elite competition for youth academies because the old development academy kind of went to the wayside, I guess, is the easiest way of saying. What can you tell me about what happened with all of that? Because I don't usually follow all that stuff very closely, so when it all happened, it kind of confused me. So can you explain it to me and the listeners what happened yesterday? So youth academies are really interesting, youth soccer in general, because I think most casual sports fans' engagement with soccer outside of World Cups for the men and the women tends to come from youth soccer. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a, a really accurate portrayal of what you expect as you're getting into the professional ranks, obviously, like a U9 game or like your your seven-year-old pickup game, uh, you know, uh, Tuesday and Thursday nights uh, throughout the entire fall are probably not going to be a uh, replicated form of what Major League Soccer, the Premier League, whatever competition it would be, but it's what a lot of people are familiar with. The hard part is, no matter how familiar with it people are, the idea of how to run youth soccer well will continue to be a major question in American soccer. And, and in fact, it was something that had a failed answer over the last 10 years or so. So for over a decade, the U.S. soccer has been involved in running academies for Major League Soccer clubs and for other prominent soccer programs uh, run independently of Major League Soccer clubs. Uh, And and so they were trying to work under the same umbrella. There were between 80 and 100 different clubs across the country that were lumped into this DA program. Uh, The the issue was with the DA, I mean, there's a few, right? But I I think one of the main ones was it was just too big I think when they launched the DA 13 years ago, they had the best intentions. They were looking to try to get 
sophisticated academies for every MLS team, but they needed teams to play against. And I don't think they knew going into it what the competitive format would look like. Mm-hmm. So they had an Oakland application period. And that's where you had, I, I'm trying to remember the numbers that were reported yesterday by my colleague Paul Tenorio and Sam Shaco, but it was something like 81 teams for the U19, so kind of like senior year of high school age group. Uh, and then the next group down, U17 was like 88 teams and then 90-something for U15, who are all involved in this. And some of them are obviously MLS teams. Some of these are uh, crossfire up in Seattle. Some of these are uh, perennially very competitive, almost inarguably better than most MLS Academy programs. Some of these um, are truly kind of the torchbearers for what youth development should be in this country but a lot aren't. And so that you were running into a lot of tournaments. And I think this is something actually where being in Minnesota, you can, we can uniquely talk about this, where the, Minis- the Midwest region was not as competitive as needed to be able to develop future professional soccer players. So you're running into these tournaments where you have to play the same eight teams that are within this kind of eight-state region. If you look at a map of professional soccer in the United States for men, there's such a chasm once you get, I want to say, north of Chicago, west of Ohio, east of the, the Pacific border states, so Seattle, or sorry, Washington, mm-hmm. Oregon, California, and then north of Missouri. There are not teams in professional soccer anywhere in that region except for Minnesota and now Madison in the third division of that soccer. So you're, you're running into playing against teams that just aren't of the caliber, but are necessary for the footprint. And so Minnesota United Academy wasn't able to play against similar level opponents or better opponents that will push them on a regular basis, except for maybe an annual tournament. So it was a flawed system. Uh, It was too big. I think the change now, there's still a lot of details that are left um, unearthed about this new elite model. Uh, I'll I'll be completely honest. I don't think many of us were expecting any sort of announcement this morning uh, in my industry. I think we had come to know that the DA was dying. Those whispers had started coming up a few weeks ago. Uh, But this whole new model is very foreign to us. Uh, I think that there's a lot that, frankly, MLS is still trying to figure out about what this model looks like. But one thing that's certain is that it's going to be less open. It's going to be MLS teams, 26 academies, plus a handful or 10 or 15, you know, truly elite programs mm-hmm. that they think are going to help keep pushing the level instead of letting in as many teams as possible to be able to get this up and running immediately. So now they're looking for quality control uh, rather than actually implementing it and just starting something. So how will this affect, I mean, it's pretty early on to possibly answer this, but how is this going to affect youth development in the U.S.? I think... It will sophisticate it a little bit. I think when you're looking at why, I mean, it's it's a million dollar, trillion dollar question these Mm -hmm. days. Why are the U.S. men not nearly good enough to compete on a regular uh, four year by four year basis with Mexico? Much less, obviously, like, you know, the Germany, the England, the France, the Argentina, the Brazil of the world. I think a big part of that is we don't know how to develop young players in this country. And the people who are in charge of that aren't able to set up a system that is going to work despite the geography of the United States instead of, uh, you know, and actually, you know, they, they need to embrace it. They need to be able to find a way to make that work. The hard part is Eastern Corridor, very competitive. 
the West Coast, very competitive. The Southwest, very competitive. Florida, very competitive. But once you get outside of those regions, uh, you, you don't have that competitiveness, which means that you have over half of the states in this country that really don't fit into the old model of what makes sense for youth soccer. The reason this country isn't developing good pros isn't necessarily because the coaches aren't ready. It isn't necessarily because uh, the tournaments aren't good enough. They might be. The issue is that they don't know how to make those frequent enough where the young players aren't just saying once a year, we've got to go to this really difficult competition, like, you know, like a state tournament mm-hmm. if you're a Minnesota State High School League athlete. You know, you're not just chasing for state once a year. You need to have state four times a year. You need to have it six times a year. And for whatever reason, they're not able to find a way to replicate that across the country, which means you're losing such a large portion of your potentially talented soccer players. So in theory, improving youth development will improve the men's national team. Uh, It's going to take a lot to improve the men's national team right now. It is still truly a top 30 program in the world, which Mm -hmm. is fine, but uh, you, you cannot miss the world cup ever again. And I think that that has started to raise some serious questions about who's involved in the programs. Why are two MLS academies, including Minnesota United still pay to play where the families and the players still have to pay to be part of an MLS Academy. In my opinion, that there's no reason an MLS Academy should have a fee attached to it. That should be fully funded by the owners of the MLS clubs. Uh, you need to work through questions like that. Uh, and I think that now that there can't be any games happening, not just the professional level, but a youth level. Now you can start to truly look at that and make decisions much quicker than you would have to, if it was business as usual around your decision-making. So if I'm understanding this correctly, they're basically just trying to make this easier to have more elite games against other, well, I guess they're just having, they're trying to have more games against other elite competition instead of what it was like before is kind of the easiest way to describe this. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's tough, right? I mean, the kind of things where even in my role, right, uh, we're not we're not briefed on what's going on on the Minnesota United Academy side. We might ask about it and we usually just get told things are going well. We signed our first homegrown front endings over the offseason. Competitions will resume in the spring, you know, yada, yada, yada. We don't necessarily get to have regular conversations, no matter how much we request, uh, with Tim Carter, who runs the academy, Manny Lagos, who now oversees that running of the academy and his new role as the chief soccer official. Um, these sort of conversations aren't usually part of what, you know, a beat writer, uh, like a newspaper writer or a national writer like us at The Athletic, are going to be talking about regularly into the minutiae. There are specialized publications that will do that. But the the idea of streamlining how, you know, the, the competition of really minimizing what they consider to be chaff from the wheat and actually truly cutting down to what they think are going to be the 35, 40 best clubs to always be in this circuit can only help improve the quality of play at those levels. Now, for the programs that are going to be cast aside and used to be a DA program and now aren't, those are going to be some serious challenges, uh, and, and they're absolutely going to lose in this sort of equation, make no mistake about it. Um, but by the sound of it, that's just not going to be U.S. soccer's problem anymore, and that in itself is another problem. How do they plan on, since they're basically narrowing down the amount of teams that are going to be playing, how do they plan on getting some of those players that were on some of those teams that are now defunct onto these now so-called elite teams or whatever they're calling them now? You know, it's going to be a really messy process, and this is something that is, one of the ugliest sides of youth soccer and probably all of youth sports in this country is that when one 
really talented player outgrows their program and goes to another one, it hurts the original program. Right? Yeah. And in, in the United States, there's something called solidarity payments, which most countries have. So like if Boston Feinsteiger starts at his hometown club and gets signed by Bayern Munich as a 15 year old, the, the hometown club has like a 0.5% uh, ownership right attached to Schweinsteiger. So the idea is that if he gets transferred from a smaller club to Bayern Munich, if he had gone to a smaller club, or if he went from Bayern Munich to Manchester United mm-hmm. or to the Chicago Fire or whatever, 0.5% of whatever transfer fee that was goes back to his original youth club, as I mean, which is significant in youth soccer. Yeah. You get that 0.5% of $40 million dollars. Like you can turn that into a much better program. The United States doesn't have that system. And so as a result, these programs, if they lose Fred Emmings, if Fred Emmings played at another club and went to Minnesota United Academy and he signs his first deal, um, they don't see anything from that. And that's a serious issue that makes the sustainability of some of these clubs who lose these players. Because what's going to happen, I, I can promise you this, Jonathan, is that these players are going to go from these programs into MLS programs Mm-hmm. or to the 10 across the country, regardless of where they live. And they're going to go chase their dream, as, frankly, they, they should have the right to do mm-hmm. if they and their families want to. Uh, they will go and they will find the program that's best for them. Uh, and it's going to leave these other ones in the dust. So it's just going to be a lot of reassigning. I mean, cynically, you could say the Minnesota United Academy system and all MLS Academy systems will benefit from this because the best players from the teams that were worse than them will inevitably have to jump ship, but it's going to be messy. I think that, yeah. as always, um, that process isn't easy, but now that more players are going to be making that step, right, it's going to be messier and messier over the next year or two. Uh, so let's move on to something that will also be pretty messy, figuring out how these leagues uh, come back and start playing once once we get uh, the coronavirus pandemic as controlled as we can and we're allowed to have sports games again. You wrote an article over at The Athletic yesterday talking about USL's plans and how they are considering splitting the conferences for a shortened season. What did you, uh, can you kind of summarize sort of what their plan is or what they're considering? So they're going through a few different models right now. Uh, The front runner would be to take the USL championship, which is the second division professional league in the United States. Uh, and is currently set up Eastern Conference, Western Conference, very recognizable formats, mm-hmm. and turning them into divisions. Again, very recognizable formats for casual sports fans, but there isn't an NFC North, or there isn't, you know, the, the, the Northwest division. Those right. things don't exist in the USL right now. It's an open table, East-West. And they're going to be splitting them up more, most likely. This is currently the front-runner plan that they have, to have nine teams per division that you can streamline your schedule and you play every team in your division twice and the other division in your conference once through. And that's going to give you, you know, that brings you to, I think, 25 games, if my math is right. And so then you could have a 25-game season that you fit from July 1st if they're high in the sky right now and they're idealists through uh, November, early November, and then you have a shorted, shortened playoff game. So it's a really grueling schedule yeah, for is. a player. But at this point, players are, I mean, desperate to. I mean, the conversations I've had with players in both Major League Soccer and USL since this stoppage has gone into effect is that they're ready to run through a brick wall if it means they can kick a ball again. Yeah. Um, owners aren't going to, they're going to fight as much as they can to have those closed-door games. Um, 
and they're really going to push to make sure they're fans on the seats, which might actually delay the season even longer if that truly comes to fruition. Mm -hmm. But right now what they're looking at is a way to cut games out, make travel more accessible for the lower league and for MLS, just play your conference uh, to make sure that the results are still fair. There's some sort of competitive balance. And if you do have a postseason, which both leagues do, then you will be able to have something close to a merit-deserved postseason instead of just who got luckiest because of what their schedule ended up looking like. And you kind of mentioned that the owners are going to fight tooth and nail to have fans in the stands because unlike most sports in this country, MLS and especially USL rely on those fans being in the stands the most out of, I think, any of the sports because they don't have the kind of TV deal that the other leagues do. Like, the NFL can get by without having fans in the stands because they have a billion-dollar TV deal. MLS and especially USL, they don't have that luxury of having that. And that's just it, too. Like, the NFL is the league most likely to cancel its 2020 season because, like you said, they can afford it. They mm-hmm. won't – you know, it'll be a tough year by comparison, but every team in the NFL makes money. Like, right. they'll be able to get through just fine. Um MLS, and especially, like you said, the USL, are match day revenue-dependent organizations. Those clubs need to have X thousand number of fans to break even, uh, or even lose money, but lose money to a lesser extent. The mm-hmm. idea of a closed-door game robs, not robs, but I mean, it takes away yeah. tens or hundreds of thousands or even over millions of dollars, depending on the level, again, USL to MLS, millions of dollars for an MLS club if they don't post the game depending on the venue. So if that's the case, um, and you still have to light up the venue, if you still have to pay Mm -hmm. officials, if you still have to pay trainers that you wouldn't pay if you didn't have games, there are some owners who are starting to say that they don't want to take that step and that they would rather just cancel the season and minimize their lost cost, which says a lot about the owners, frankly. But I think that, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to see a way where American soccer could play a closed door season and still see every single team in its ecosystem from MLS to the USL play again in 2021. Have you heard, is there any fears of teams folding because of this? That's a conversation we had on Mackie and Judd with Rami the other day is that there probably will be not specifically in the MLS, but there will probably be a team in the NHL, maybe in MLB in major league baseball that comes close to folding because they're losing so much revenue is from this. Is there any fears so far of teams folding because they can't afford to take the hit? Not at the MLS level. And so this is something where actually MLS gets a lot of crap for being single entity. And the idea that MLS, you know, every team pays into this, every team gets paid out from this. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's one thing. It's not team by team, club by club, whatever. But this is why they designed it like this, Jonathan. Like, it's the idea of being able to have the security net of it's not just, okay, well, Atlanta, Seattle can fill NFL stadiums. So they're going to be far better off through this compared to Columbus Crew, who play in a 20,000-seat stadium and barely draw 13,000, or Houston, who might draw 8,000. You know, and suddenly they're losing even that kind of bandage money. Mm-hmm. And now what are you going to do? Single entity is the exact reason that they're going to be okay. But when you get to the USL level and it's owner by owner, you know, the, the ownership stake necessary to buy a USL championship club, second division, the principal owner needs to have a net worth of $20 million. And, and it's, you know, it's a lot. Of, I would love to have $20 million. <laughs> but 
Um, I think when you're looking at how much money you lost on an annual basis from not having date revenue, sponsorships paid out, uh, concessions, parking, and you lose all of that and you're still paying all of your salaries and all of your staff or as many of your staff as you decide to keep on, um, then you are seriously having to consider whether or not you can do this another season. Uh, I can tell you now that there will be USL teams already who are making decisions as of only April, and who knows how much longer this goes on, mm-hmm. but there are already teams projecting out that they're going to have to fold after 2020. I can tell you that right now. Um, MLS, though, uh, you won't see it at that level. USL, and then when you get to the uh, NWSL, the, the, the number one women's league in the country, yep. uh, those are the teams that you're going to have to really start watching and wondering whether or not they have viability after the other side of this. Yeah, I think it was uh, the players... The fifth pro have said that I think it was them that said this morning that women's soccer is because of this is at greater risk than most other like small teams. So that's something definitely we'll be watching. Um, what was it? It was the other day that Don Garber went on Taylor Twelman's uh, show and he basically said that MLS is looking kind of at everything they can to get as, getting in as many games as possible whenever the coronavirus suspension ends which they they put out a statement that says Major League Soccer continues to regularly evaluate the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, including how it will affect our plans for the 2020 season. Although we had hoped to return to play in mid-May, that is extremely unlikely based on the guidance of federal and local public health authorities. They didn't give a return date. This is the first time they haven't done that, so it seems like it's kind of indefinite at this point when we'll get Major League Soccer back, which is... uh, it goes along with ever, all the other sports in the country that have kind of just put everything on an indefinite hold. Is there fears that the season for both MLS and USL may just get canceled outright? Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm scared of tornadoes, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't necessarily worry about them all the time. Right. But I, I think, yes, there is anxiety about whether or not there will be a season, especially once you get into that conversation we just had. And I'm so sorry that this is not the most thrilling yeah. episode that you had. But these are real, like, these are very real mm-hmm. conversations that are happening in the sport right now. But I think there will be a 2020 season. I think at this point, every single person, every player, every uh, team executive, every league executive are adamant that even if it has to be some disgusting World Cup replicating group (laughs) stage knockout, boom, we're done. Every team plays three games this year. They would rather do that get the TV ratings bonanza of, uh, you know, a quick knockout style tournament for the season than not have a season. So it won't resemble what we're used to. It won't resemble what happens in 2021, assuming that we're able to get a return to play during even the late summer. Yeah. 2021 will be back to normal about this rate. But, uh, you know, I, I think that they are adamant to do everything they can, just like every other uh, business and sports league, do everything that they can to have some sort of product for the money they've already invested by signing players, signing staff. So, um, will there be a 2020 season uh, in some form? Yes, I, I'm very confident in that. Yet, if you ask me on in another month and things keep changing, we'll see. But I can tell you right now, both MLS and the USL, uh, MLS, I think uh, my colleague Pablo Marder uh, reported that June 8th is going to be the new MLS deadline day or the, the new kind of delay mm-hmm. uh, for the possible return. Um, the two leagues 
are preparing to come back in July as of, I mean, the current economy and the current, you know, yeah. <laughs> status quo that we have. Um, they are planning as if July will be the return to training. They're going to have two weeks tune up and then they'll be able to play again by late July. That is as of right now, the plan and every model that they have as far as how to reschedule the season relies on July. So the next couple of months or the next month and a half, I would say, um, really won't change much about their decision making, uh, just in terms of they weren't ever thinking they would play again in April or May. Um, but once you start getting into June, if things haven't improved, if people haven't taken the, you know, the flatten the curve and stay at home, please stay at home, uh, kind of calls to action, uh, and they keep bypassing them to be able to go do whatever they usually do in their lives, uh, that's when you start running the risk of having a potentially canceled season. You want to talk about something a little bit more uplifting? Yeah, I mean, why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't heard, here on Score North, we are rebroadcasting old Minnesota United matches every Saturday night at 7 p.m. We're just going through our back catalog of games that we have still in the system and recorded. Um, and so this Saturday, we've uh, we've already exhausted both the games from this season. Last Saturday, we replayed the home opener at Allianz Field last year. So this Saturday, we are moving to, if I remember the date correctly, June 29th of last year. And that was the 7-1 win over FC Cincinnati. Somehow, Jeff, there was no hat tricks in this game, despite seven goals scored. Uh, what do you remember from Minnesota United 7, FC Cincinnati 1? Uh, I remember the debut of Baby Shark at Allianz <laughs> Field. Uh, they, they started this weird trend where they started playing Baby Shark after scoring like four or five goals, and it happened more than once. It was nuts. Um, no, I think, I mean, I've got, I've got this weird position where I remember different things about FC Cincinnati losing a game by six goals. Um, as FC Cincinnati was going through their expansion season, I was writing a fair amount for the Athletic about their roster build and mm-hmm. that, their decision to bring their head coach up from the USL. Uh, and I wasn't necessarily glowing in my reviews of the roster build. And FC Cincinnati fans were telling me I was crazy. We're telling me I didn't know anything about the sport and were telling me that they were going to go win MLS Cup. <laughs> By this point, they are pretty well established as the worst team over the last five years in Major League Soccer. Yeah. And they come to Allianz Field. Uh, they, they were very public before the season in saying we are purposely going about this in a way that won't replicate what Minnesota United did when they then broke the record for allowing 70 goals uh, in the 2017 season, uh, and saying that, yes, we will be much better defensively. We'll be much better in the midfield in Minnesota. Um, so I know that that was bulletin board material before mm-hmm. FC Cincinnati ever kicked a ball. And then Minnesota comes out. Uh, they're in the playoff hunt at this point already. They look like a guaranteed playoff team. It's just a matter of where they're going to finish. Uh, and we're only in June. Yeah. Cincinnati comes in town. They're not playing well. Uh, and, and you'll be surprised to hear that they did not play well um, at Allianz Field, and they played very poorly, actually. <laughs> um, uh, that was, uh, I'm, I'm a men's league goalkeeper, and it Cincinnati's defending that day reminded me of a men's league team up against a very capable, well-oiled college team, where one team looks like they tugged two beers and took to the field, and it's <laughs> throwing wins out there, and the other team is fit. They are ready to go, and they're running laps around you. Um, that was probably the most emphatic. I mean, scoreline says it, right? But yeah. that was like the most emphatic performance 
ML or Minnesota United had put together, I think, ever up until that point. Um, you know, they hadn't gone to LAFC and won 2-0 on the road. They hadn't, um, you know, had some of these great results that they had late in the season yet. But I think that was the moment where everyone realized that, yes, Cincinnati, Cincinnati. But Minnesota is a team that is capable of, I mean, doing more than just what's expected and actually putting it all together in a game. That was a very complete game. Uh, the goal that Cincinnati scored, I mean, if I remember right, it was a penalty or it was like really, really close to it in terms of the proximity of Emmanuel yeah. Medesma scoring it. Um, but I mean, it was a, it was a literal fireworks kind of game where at halftime it was like four zero or four one. And you could just tell that all the fans were like, I'm just going to go get two cocktails and we're just going to have some fun in the second half. Um, it was, it was a really fun atmosphere to be at. Um, and, and certainly it's a call, uh, I would say is definitely worth listening to if you're going to be around your radio. I would agree with that because it was my debut as the sideline uh, reporter for the radio yeah, broadcast. Yeah, we. Uh, so it was a national television game. So usually when that happens, uh, Cal and Kendra jump over to our broadcast. But because it was the time during the Women's World Cup, Kendra was off doing World, Women's World Cup duties with Fox. So Jamie hopped up into the booth. I took his place down on the sideline. And I can remember that entire week, my only fear or my biggest fear was that Minnesota United would lose and I would have to talk to an angry Adrian Heath on the sideline or... <laughs> After the game on the on the pitch, yeah, and yeah, yeah. thankfully I didn't have to. Thankfully I got to experience Wonderwall on the field, which was probably the it was easily the coolest experience of all last season for me personally. Besides seeing the opening of Allianz Field and then a playoff game, and seeing my favorite players Latan Ibrahimovic twice in person, though he didn't score either yeah, of the yeah. times, which but whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, man. And I mean, like, you're lucky. I mean, it is good that you dodged an angry agent heat for your first sideline interview. Um, I, I can't imagine that would be terribly fun having Jim no. done post game, uh, post loss interviews with him quite a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, those are the, it's crazy though, because like you wonder, like, what is he doing? Like, you hear about players and you're saying, you know, yeah. uh, they, you know, they can train, they can do all this, they're getting stir crazy, but they're getting spend time with, you know, their, spouses and kids and mm-hmm. all this stuff. But I mean, for a coach, uh, especially a coach now who is serving essentially as a general manager, like how much of their day, how much of their week, their life goes into this. And suddenly, you know, they, they're not able to do anything like that. You yeah. know, it, it, it's crazy to think what he must be up to right now, but uh, no, <laughs> to the point, yes, it was a tremendous game. Um, and uh, I mean, a good milestone game for you. to be fair. That's you. You're kind of going along. One of the thoughts that I've been having is that, they just got done with an off-season of watching tape and figuring out how they're going to attack this season. Two games in, the season's postponed. Now they're back to watching even more tape. Is is there a point where you get to, I've watched too much tape at this point, and now I've just got to figure out something else? Luckily enough for him, I mean, he's got the GM yeah. role, so he can just go to scouting at this point. Right, right. And I will say, too, it's going to be a buyer's market coming out of, yeah. uh, coming out of this for the transfer market. Like The teams that actually do have... Uh, financial backing and do have uh, wiggle room with their budgets are going to be much better off than the teams who are desperately looking to sell players to kind of get back to breaking even. Uh, so, it, again, this is where MLS might be uniquely positioned to do well is that by single entity uh, and by kind of these safety payments that every MLS team gets, they should be more able to take these sorts of risks. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe his scouting now is unearthing that he can sign uh, Leo Messi for about $500,000. <laughs> who knows? You heard it here first. Hashtag Leo Messi to Minnesota. You can credit Jeff for that one. 
perfect. Hey, why not? Why not? What else do we do anymore, right? Well, let's. We are the home of reckless speculation here at Scornor, so might as well start that here on Loon Talk. Reckless speculation, Jeff. I I just want to thank you for your time. I won't keep you the the hour that I kept you last time, despite telling you half an hour. I told you half an hour today. I'm keeping to half an hour. So thank you for all your time. Much appreciated, sir. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Thank you for listening. We will uh, come back in two weeks with another episode of Loon Talk. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Stay inside. Stay home. Thank you, and we will talk to you in two weeks. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.